It will come as no surprise, I don't think, that I get into trouble at work from time to time. What might be a little bit more surprising is one of the reasons why. My boss gets frustrated because I refuse to give a yes or no answer. And the reason for this is that I have an innate distrust of simple answers and of what people will do with a simple answer if and when they get it. So this feels a little bit of a strange sermon for me to be bringing. Whether it's our countries, our organizations, our relationships, our health, when things get difficult and start to deteriorate, life is complicated. There are a lot of moving parts in almost everything that we touch, and a lot of the challenges that we face have layers upon layers of complexity. There are, of course, some easy answers. Golden rules, replacing bad habits with good habits, having a positive attitude, attending regular medical checkups, surrounding ourselves with uh, encouraging friends. Doing these things will simplify our lives. But many of our problems are complex. So I've called what I'm going to bring this morning the root cause. And as we read the Bible, we're taught that whether we're talking about moral, societal, economic, physical, mental, or spiritual decline, there is a single simple reason. Sin. And even more specifically than that, man's rejection of and turning away from God. It's the fundamental issue in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. The serpent tempts Eve and Adam with the words, did God really say that? Sowing doubt. And then holds out the temptation of being like God in their own right. No longer dependent on him, but self-sufficient and self-determining. We often refer to those events as the fall. And the consequences of it were both immediate for Adam and Eve and far-reaching throughout all of history. In many ways, the individual things that we often refer to as sins are merely symptoms of the original root cause that mankind has turned away from God. As Andy reminded us last week, today is Pentecost. The events we read of in Acts 2 took place on the, Ju- the day of the Jewish festival of weeks, Shavuot, 50 days after the Passover festival. The Passover and Feast of Weeks were two of the three pilgrimage celebrations instituted by God in Moses' time, which is, so many, which is why so many people from out of town were in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' death and of the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We read about Shabbat in a number of passages, Leviticus 23, verses 15 to 22, Numbers 28, verses 26 to 31, and Deuteronomy 16, verses 9 and 12. While it was a celebration to mark harvest, the feast was, and still is, a celebration of the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. While the Bible doesn't specify this, the rabbinic traditions place the timing of the giving of the Ten Commandments at seven weeks after the Passover and Israel's flight from Egypt. Now, Gary reminded us a few weeks ago about the events of the giving of the Ten Commandments. And we read about this in Exodus chapter 20 in the following chapters. In chapter 24, a solemn covenant was sealed, where twice in verses 3 and 7, the Israelites stated they would do everything that God had told them to do. 
and there were sacrifices made to seal the covenant. Moses then went up to the mountain for a long time, returning to find that the people of Israel had already broken the laws that they had vowed and declared that they would uphold. In Leviticus, the laws of Moses are laid out in great detail, and Leviticus 26 speaks of what the covenant God promises in return for obedience, but also the punishments for disobedience. Now, I don't need to read out that passage today because it spells out pretty much everything that Israel suffered, plagues, famines, wars, defeat, and exile over the next several hundred years of their history. I do, though, want to read a similar passage from Deuteronomy. Now, the word Deuteronomy comes from the Greek words meaning second and law. The Israelites now stand on the borders of the Promised Land, and Moses, who has been told that he will never enter it, is nearing his death. He gathers the people together to read the law for a second time, as it were. And in chapter 11, verses 26 and 31, we read the following. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today. The curse if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way that I command you today by following other gods which you have not known. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. As you know, these mountains are across the Jordan, west of the road, towards the setting sun near the great trees of Moray, in the territory of those Canaanites living in the Arabah in the vicinity of Gilgal. You are about to enter... Uh, so you're about to cross the Jordan to enter and take possession of the land uh, the Lord your God is giving you. When you have taken it over and are living there, be sure that you obey all the decrees and laws I am setting before you today. The blessings and curses are woven in through the next 20 chapters. But I love the idea that in spelling out the rewards of obedience and punishments for disobedience and turning away from God, There were two mountains, two of the highest in the region, as a visual reminder. You can almost hear God and Moses saying, look, this is serious stuff. And we know you get forgetful about these things. So we're going to pronounce these blessings and curses over two whacking great mountains so that you can't miss them. And we'll remember them every time you see those mountains. It's far more impressive than some of our to-do lists or calendar reminders or tying a knot in your hanky, which is one I never really understood anyway. Both books, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, when talking about the consequences of turning away from God, also, however, talk of forgiveness, reconciliation and restoration should God's people repent and return to him. Now, turning to the New Testament, in Romans Paul takes us on a bit of a journey through history. In chapter 1, he introduces the gospel and goes on to address the root cause of the moral decline of society. As we read verses 18 to 32, Paul underlines this root cause. In verse 21, he says, Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. In verse 22, they exchanged the truth of God 
for a lie. In verse 28, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, all leading to an accelerating decline of mind and morals, culminating in verse 32, which reads, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Paul is saying that as people and nations turn away from God, there is a darkening of the mind and a hardening of the heart that expresses itself in deteriorating moral standards. I believe there are other impacts as well which we can see in society, but they're not Paul's theme in this passage. Through the first seven chapters of Romans, the law features heavily. Paul talks about all Jew and Gentile coming under condemnation of the law. All have sinned, we read in Romans 3, verse 23. But he talks about the revealing of a righteousness from God apart from the law, chapter 3, verse 21, that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, a righteousness that brings about our justification, forgiveness, and being declared righteous by faith. In Romans 5, verses 1 to 5, we read the following. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. In chapter 8, verse 1, we go on to read, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And Paul in that chapter goes on to contrast life under the law and the law's powerlessness to deal with the sinful nature with what it means to live by the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit to deal with sin in sinful men and women. Whether this was Paul's intention or not, to me this unfolding of the old and new covenants feels like a contrast to Shavuot, the birth of the community of the law, the covenant nation of Israel, and Pentecost, the birth of the community of the Spirit, the church, the gathered, Ecclesia in Greek, called out from all nations. And I am talking here quite deliberately about communities here, because we have a tendency to very quickly focus in on the individual and our individual salvation. But uh, that, my, my theme today is broader than the individual because what we're looking at is the impact of our root cause, that rejection and turning away from God on communities and on nations. Which I guess brings us around to a little bit of application of this. If the root cause of the problems of our nations and communities, both individually and collectively, is turning away from God, what are the remedies? Well again, and in some ways I hate myself for this, a simple answer repentance, turning back to God. 
whether we're looking at the spheres of economics, the organizations we work for, morals and ethics in society, physical or psychological health, our personal or professional relationships. If we want to fix things, we more often than not need to understand what is causing the issues. We can identify and treat symptoms, and in the short and medium term, that may be enough, but lasting solutions relying on being able to address the underlying reasons and causes for the problems we encounter. And for me, this is why Paul, in his letters and in person, worked so hard to present a pure, unadulterated gospel of repentance, forgiveness from sin, justification by faith, and life by the Spirit, bearing witness to and proving worthy of the standards that God expects from us. There's a pattern to most of Paul's letters that involves reiterating the gospel message, tackling any prevalent local heresies, where people were trying to add something back in to salvation by faith, whether a, a reversion to Jewish practices such as circumcision, or eating or not eating particular foods, or whether it was teaching from the surrounding culture, and then outlining the character and the behaviors expected of Christian communities. To pick out a few quotes from Paul, just to take a look a little bit behind his motivation. Romans 1 verse 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 2 he says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 22 says, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 he says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world, and goes on a little bit later to say, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And just to undermine how seriously he, he took some of this, Galatians 1 verse 9 he says, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Paul is clear that the message that we bear is important and needs to be, needs to be preached in a pure form. As Christians, if we're saying, we know the root cause of the human condition, rejection of God, and we know the solution, which is repentance turning back to God, then that is why the message of the church is so critical, and therefore why we need to be diligent in proclaiming that message, and watchful that our conduct doesn't detract from our witness to the character and love of God. We as Christians in the church, as the body of Christ, are the only hope for this world. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount Matthew 7, verse 13 to 14, calls us to be salt and light. And the imagery is simple, but also powerful. Salt with its preservative and transformative effect on food, and light that is seen from far and wide, the city on a hill that banishes darkness. The gospel, our ministry as churches, is to have that sort of effect on society. In 2 Corinthians 5, um, Paul talks a little bit about ministry and he says, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. 
We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though, God, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Again, the imagery is powerful. That of the church as almost a nation state, the kingdom of God, if you like, offering peace and reconciliation with God to the world. And how badly the world needs that. In Ephesians 2, Paul goes on to uh, talk about um, reconciliation. He talks about reconciling the Jew with Gentile, but also that that goes hand in hand with reconciliation with God. And he goes on to say in verses 15 and 16, so make, make that 14 to 16, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their, their hostility. He goes on in verses 19 to 22 to say, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's, household, uh, God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in, in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And a few verses later, in chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, we read, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do we think of the church in those terms? Maybe, maybe I should ask that question a slightly different way. Do we think of this church? in those terms and of our role in it. Our highest calling, our most pressing duty is to be the body of Christ, extending God's covenant of peace, forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration and wholeness to a world that badly needs it. Philippians 2, 
verse 12 to 16, 16 puts it this way. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. I prefer the NIV... uh, I prefer the version of the Bible that I've got there, uh, which says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. And that, I believe as Christians, is our role, to be that distinctively different that we shine like stars and hold out that word of life. As I said at the start, understanding and addressing root causes is important. The diagnosis for the world's problems is simple. Having turned away from God and that turning away leading to decay decay and decline. However, I do want to be careful around this because this is not a mandate for a Bible-thumping brand of we will only preach the gospel Christianity. As Peter tells us, we're called to share the gospel with gentleness and respect. Many will not or cannot accept our diagnosis of what ails the world. So as Christians, we are also called to tackle the symptoms. As we read in Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Jesus quoted these verses verses as his messianic mission. And as we read about his ministry, he sets an example for us. His ministry wasn't just about preaching and teaching, but about engaging with and helping people in the mess of life and addressing their needs. In doing that, though, let us not forget about their greatest need of salvation through faith in Christ. So as we look around ourselves today, the world's biggest problem isn't the environmental crisis. It's not wars. It's not natural disasters. It's not economic inequality or decline. Those are all symptoms that result from the root cause that is man's rejection of God. At Pentecost, we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of an amazing community with a hugely important calling and equipping from God, the church of which we are a part. We in God are the only solution for the world's problems. As Peter puts it in Acts 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. What a high calling. Amen, let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have 
a remarkable salvation. Lord, that you loved us while we were still sinners. That you died in our place and rose again for our justification. And Lord, that you have called us your children. You have called us as the church, your bride, your body. And Lord, we pray that you would help us and equip us in the power of your spirit to fulfill that calling, that high calling of extending your covenant of salvation, your covenant of forgiveness, of restoration to a world that badly needs it. In Jesus' name, amen.